while the kids were in school, he came, comes home from school. He's just about ready to turn 16. And the mom, he looks out in the garage. He's like, where is the Bronco? And she said, I, this is really cruel, but, but really beautiful in the end. She said, oh, it was just sitting there. It's not worth very much money. It needs too much work. I sold it so we could get some money for you to buy a different car. And she said that he didn't speak to her for two weeks. He was crushed about this. It was very meaningful to him. And it was funny because the celebration was they go to the dealership. Everybody's waiting at the dealership. And they go there, and she's like, oh, we're going to pick out a different car for you. We can find something. He's in there. The Bronco's behind a wall. They drive it through, and he's, like, confused. Watching the scene you see a different kind of rejoice. Do you get what I'm saying? This is a much deeper rejoice. It's tearful in his rejoice. It's shock, un unbelief, and everyone just cheers, and they're like, well, do you want to get in? And he's like crying, and he gets in the car. And I thought it was one of the coolest pictures of someone who their rejoice was so much deeper because it was connecting to something so much more meaningful than just a tool or a car to get around. But our rejoice is even deeper than that. Our rejoice is much further than that. What you experience through salvation, through God with you, produces such a deeper, greater rejoice in your life because it's bigger than a car, it's bigger than a president, and it's bigger than a game. It's life-changing. I think this, when it comes to our salvation, the Bible reminds us to rejoice. Paul, if you remember through the book of Acts, Paul continually reminded people to rejoice even in their suffering because there was something deeper to rejoice about. Like Tristan with this Bronco, he has a deep appreciation for it. I guarantee that kid does not, does not take chances when he parks that car. I guarantee he does not take chances or take it for granted by not taking care of it and filling the car up and making sure it's always taken care of and cleaned. I guarantee it. He has a deeper value of that. It has a deeper meaning. And I think that we have to realize that our salvation deep inside, its value drives the rejoice. And I say this because the deeper value you have in the appreciation, what it means that God is with you, that you have been saved, because God chose to come, is something so meaningful in its value that not only do you want to rejoice, but you want others to rejoice in that with you or experience the rejoice. Let me tell you how important your salvation is. Jesus does it for me, actually, in John or Luke 10. Jesus is sending out his disciples. He's sending out 72 disciples, and he's sending them out. But he does something interesting. He tells them what to do, which is to go preach the kingdom so that others may know that salvation is here. And then he secondarily empowers them with authority so that they can cast out demons. They can pray for those who are sick. Now, notice the order. But when they come back, they report to Jesus, and they're like rejoicing and saying, even the demons listen to us. And listen to what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You have the rejoices mixed up. They're focusing on power, authority, something maybe they never had. 
And Jesus is saying, I think you've missed the point here. Your task was to go bring the kingdom because that's the true meaning of it all. And you've come back celebrating the peripheral, the things that are not what matter. The thing that matters, the thing that you should truly rejoice in is that you are heaven bound. You are connected to God in Christ. You have salvation. That's what Jesus says you should be rejoicing in. Salvation, I think, is our heart's endless rejoicing. So no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how powerful you may feel or how powerless you feel, Jesus says what you can rejoice about continually and nonstop and must remind yourself to rejoice about is that you are saved. It's interesting because I think in our Christian life we can sometimes get so comfortable with the fact that we are saved, that you have been rescued, that you actually rose from the dead through Christ. You get so comfortable with this profound reality that we can treat it like the car after a while. It was new, but after a while we're like, Ugh, should I just sell the car because it's dirty and get a new one? Right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and that's not at all what Jesus tells us that our mindset and our state should be is in continual rejoicing. If you can't rejoice about anything, rejoice in the fact that you are saved, that you found a way, that there is hope. The central passage, and then we'll get in a little bit of the song. The central passage that we should definitely reflect on here, and the, and the song kind of brings out a little bit, is Matthew 1.18. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Matthew's doing something different than the other Gospels. Matthew is dealing with an issue that there are the churches at the time are saying Jesus actually never came in the flesh. Jesus just appeared like a ghost. And everything he did, people just saw that he might have been human, but he wasn't human. He never really truly appeared, because how could God actually do that? Now, I love what Matthew says. If you want to know how it took place, this is how it took place. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, meaning like this arrangement made back, which they did back then, betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man. And unwilling to put her to shame, meaning that, wait, this is like a Jerry Springer episode. Like, whose baby is that? You know what I mean? Like, we got to get a DNA test. Like, my betrothed wife is now with a child. Joseph's in a crisis. I like that. It says he's just a man. And unwilling to put her to shame, meaning that this could have been a very horrific incident for Mary. And not only that, if Joseph was a righteous man and lived rightly according to the law, this could have been Mary's death sentence. But he chose to resolve to divorce her quietly. And as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is, is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. This is the important phrase. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now this is the instruction of how and who Jesus will be named. It's important this name Jesus is a very common name at that time. But it means in the lineage of Joseph. Very important for his linkage to David. 
and he will be saved and he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they, they will call his name Emmanuel. Now, that is not the exact quote from Isaiah 7. Matthew is not misquoting scripture. He's bringing the greater revelation of scripture. Isaiah 7 says, to, uh, it's prophesied to a king that you will call your son Emmanuel. But Isaiah is a different context in a different place. Emmanuel is only used in two books of the Bible, Isaiah and here. Emmanuel means God with us. But when he says, they will call him Emmanuel, meaning that they will recognize that God is with them. Which means God with us, Matthew says. When Joseph woke up from, the, uh, from his sleep, he did as the angel had commanded him. He took his wife, but they knew not, uh, 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 they, he knew her not until she had given birth, and he called him Jesus. By Joseph saying, you are Jesus. This happened in the Roman world, and this happened in, in, in ancient Israel. When the father put the name and named the child, that meant it was his lineage. Adoption happened all the time throughout the ancient world, but when the father named the child, they named that child, and the lineage came with the child. That's why it was important for him to name him. But we call him Emmanuel. In the Old Testament, when you think about God with us, God's presence all throughout the Old Testament is stated in a couple of unique ways. God never dwelt and walked among the people. And God wasn't with the people always. There were times where he removed his presence from them. But the Old Testament, when it talks about this, is very different than Emmanuel in this way, if you remember Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah, etc., all had these things said to them that God would say, don't worry, do not fear, I will be with you. In this momentary situation I'm calling you to be a part of, do not fear, I will be with you. Usually followed by a I will. And I will would be, I will rescue you. I will help you. I will restore you. I will save you. I'll give you peace. I'll give you joy. I will help you fight that fear. I will defeat the enemy. These are all the I wills in the Old Testament when God's presence was there. I will restore you. I will comfort you. I will uphold you. Now that's an Old Testament God is with you sense, but not Emmanuel. Emmanuel is very different. Emmanuel is very different in the New Testament because it's God is with us. But when you really begin to look at the walking out of Emmanuel, it's God is among you. I'll read all these. I went through as much as I could of the characteristics of how Jesus displayed Emmanuel in, in, in the writings of the New Testament. He's among you. He's alongside of you. He's, God is speaking with you. He is hearing you. Same today as it was then. Dwelling with you. God is hurting with you. He is consoling you. He is with you and encouraging you. He is standing for you. He is God with you who touches the untouchable, who loves the unlovable. He is the God who raises the lowly and humbles the arrogant. 
He is the God who served, he suffered, he sacrificed, he died, and he resurrected you with him. That is Emmanuel. So when we hear the term Emmanuel, we cannot think about it in the Old Testament context. Emmanuel is something very different. So when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, it means something wholly different than God's presence as described in the Old Testament. It's much, much deeper, much, much personal, and much, much more present in your everyday life. You know, I was researching this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a very hard one to research. Give it a shot. Good luck. This is the oldest Christmas song in history. This song is 1,200 years old. It is very hard to find a lot about it, but you can find a little. This song was written in the 8th century. It was written in a monastery by monks. It was not written as a song. It was written as a poem. And the poem was very interesting because what we sing here and we'll sing today, and I'll go through a little bit today, is there's three verses that we sing that's pretty common, but there are actually seven to this. And why this is probably one of the most significant, I think, call to response songs is because these seven verses, you can look them up, they're easy to find, are basically... The title, every song, start, every line starts with the title of, uh, of maybe who Jesus is or his identity or a name he holds. And then a description of what that name does. And it goes through each one of them. And what they did in that monastery is the seven days leading up to Christmas, up to Christmas Eve, each day they would say the verse. And then the response would be rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel. And it was just this beautiful rhythm that they had preparing them for the moment where they celebrated, where their lives were changed forever. And each time, rejoice, rejoice, O come Emmanuel, is not necessarily a chorus, but more of a refrain, meaning that every line brings you to a new celebration of rejoice, rejoice. And another line, as you rejoice, rejoice, you're rejoicing about something new and more. And it builds and builds and builds and all the way to the very end where it's ultimate victory. Rejoice, rejoice. So when you sing that song again, I think you'll feel that. But I think the big question we can ask ourselves today when the angel said, they will call him Emmanuel. My question to us is, will you call him Emmanuel? Do you call him Emmanuel? God with us. In your very hard places in life, maybe right now, do you call him Emmanuel, that he is with you? God with me, Christ in me. I, I generally walk around, I think, with like a sense. I've, I have a sense that God is with me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where when something really hard is going on in your life, you're just like, okay, but God, I know you're with me. And I, I've always like, I've never really had that rattled very much. And until recently, one of my kids was very, very, very sick. And when they're older and they're very, very sick, it's scarier. You know what I mean? Like when they're younger, I thought my kids were going to die all the time. I was like, are they breathing? You know what I'm talking about? You're always freaking out. You're always... But when they're older and they're a teenager, an adult, and they're not doing well, I remember, I think I may have shared this a while back, but I was at the doctor's office, and she was in like an anaphylactic shock, and it was scary. 
And, and usually I always have like, okay, God, like be with me in this moment. And I, ha- I couldn't believe it. I actually froze. My brain shut down when all the doctors were running in and they're like freaking out. And I'm the kind of person that always followed what my dad said, which is don't worry until I worry. You know what I mean? And I just was standing there like these doctors are freaking out. They're losing their pulse, blah, blah, blah. And I stood there and just like they moved me out and I stood in the doorway and I was like froze, couldn't move. And, and I just was like, is this it? Is this the end? I forgot in that moment that God was with me. It, it, it troubled me because that moment I was in, and this was not long ago, I look back and I go, wow, I was in such a place of fear, despair, worry, hopelessness. And I forgot in that moment that in that moment, God is with me still. And it brought me back to like remembering back how I lived that way every single day before I understood Emmanuel. Another thing we should ask ourselves is singing from your rejoice. Like, do I sing from this rejoice of this truth I hold? This the greatest truth, this unbelievable joy, this deeply rooted in another reality that I can be solid in a storm because I hold this reality and I can rejoice. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers in the 1800s, probably preached the most messages in history. He said this, a rejoicing heart soon makes a praising tongue. And when we grab hold deep of that rejoicing heart of a truth, of a reality of our salvation, that Emmanuel is present, God is with us, then the, the mouth will eventually speak that truth. Three quick reflections on this song, O Come Emmanuel, and then we will sing this song again. One, what the song invites us into, because this is an invitation. Every, every line or every, every verse is an invitation. It's in this. This first invitation is, Remember that you were hopeless once. Remember that you were hopeless before you came to Christ. The invitation is this. Remember when you were lost and you were wandering and you were always searching. Do you remember those days? you got to bring yourself back there. Do you remember those days? You could bring yourself back to that state where you were wandering, you were hopeless, you were lost The song goes like this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Israel is captive. Humanity is captive. That mourns in lonely exile here, this exile, this loneliness, this alone, no one is coming, I don't see the light. So he, the, the writers, the, the monks, wanted to bring themselves back to what life was like then. But also it invites us to bring ourselves back to remember what life was like then for us. We were a lonely exile, Israel. Until the Son of God appear, hoping, waiting, because there's no other way. There must be only that way. Isaiah 35.10 kind of speaks to this. And the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting. Listen to what happens when the ransom comes. Christ giving his life for your life. So you can be alive 
and righteous before God. The ransoms come shouting in Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. Listen to the language. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is what Emmanuel does. A ransom in the Bible is a purchase, a shedding of blood, a releasing of the prisoners. And then it ends that verse with rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel. The second reflection we can really get out of this song as we sing it is, uh, we can remember the day that salvation arrived. If you don't have that date, we should talk. I would love to talk about that. But if you've maybe forgotten what that date was like, or the moment we had a revelation that Christ was who Christ said he was, and you were reborn, like, remember that moment. And it helps you to remember it because then you remember the day before that. The invitation here in this part of the verse is to remember the moment that you saw the great light. You were free. You were alive. We should never forget that moment. It's like that person who's stranded in the sea, just being tossed by the waves, waiting for someone to rescue them. Imagine, this is what you were like. This is what you were like, whether you know it or not. You were just hopeless and aimless looking, hoping that something was going to be truth, salvation, purpose. And what they're talking about is remember that when at the distance you saw the rescue boats coming and you knew this was going to come to an end and you were going to have salvation. You're not like Gilligan on his island that you'll never get off of it. You, wow, if you are old, you got it. If you are not, I loved that show. I'm sorry if you're like 20s. Oh. But it's like, it's like a, there's a way, and that way has come for you. And here's how the song, this next verse goes. O come thy, thou day spring from on high, meaning hope has arrived. The dawn is coming, and you see a little bit of that light coming. And cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Now, we don't speak in these terms, but our hearts warming that it's on the horizon and disperse the gloomy clouds of night. You know this feeling. You know when the clouds began to disperse. When the person who's been sharing their faith with you for a long time, it's finally starting to dawn that there might be more. I remember as someone who was like, I'm pretty sure God is not real and Christianity is bunk. And I remember when I first started to see the clouds part and I first started to question, maybe there is a God. That's a good place to start. And I began to see the clouds part and then the dawn coming in my life. When the dark night finally begins to end. I was trying to be super spiritual a couple years back and uh, wanted to go out into the woods or out into Joshua Tree. And some of you know, like I went out there to camp and I was going to go not eat any food. I was going to drink water and I wasn't going to talk to anybody. And I was just going to be alone with myself. And it's going to be me and God by myself. 
and I want to be in the desert like Jesus, just minus like, you know, just 10% of what he did, you know what I mean? And I wanted to be out there. And it was funny because I picked July, which I didn't realize is July is a bad time to go to Joshua Tree. And uh, it was really weird. At night, I had this brand new tent. And at night, these storms would come in at night, and they were unbelievable. I remember having a moment of a mental breakdown. It happened every single night. And I could see the clouds coming in towards the end of the day, and I was like, oh, no! It was awful. And it broke my tent. It broke all the framing. And I'm literally holding the tent at night while it's raining and it's windy, and I'm like, oh! I didn't sleep, but I tell you what, I would feel the wind start to calm, and I would, fee- I would see the light coming up, and I was like, oh, thank you, God, it's sun, it's the day. It's like that in your life. When the storm is over, it's inviting us to remember when we saw it change, the wind stopped, and light was finally here. Luke 1, uh, uh, Luke chapter 1, 76 through 79, and you, uh, this is a, a, a prophecy to uh, the, uh, John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, and uh, you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. Now, here's where some important language starts to come in. For you will go on before the Lord and prepare his way to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. And the song calls us to remember the sunrise from on high when it visited you. To shine upon those who sit in darkness. And you know what I'm talking about. And you know what that darkness feels like. And the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And then the song invites us again into the refrain of rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. The very last thing, and we'll start to close, is the song invites us into the idea that, you know, salvation in church and how it's been preached and the fight, like we talked about two weeks ago with Charles uh, Wesley, that salvation is something that is secured for you. You know, it's kind of interesting because when, when we're talking about Charles Wesley, right? He's a preacher who wrote that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He's a preacher preaching for years and years and years about salvation and that people need to come to know Jesus. And then if you do good enough, eventually he might give you salvation. And Charles Wesley had a revelation of grace through someone teaching. And he realized that, oh my gosh, no, salvation is through faith alone. And I'm secure. And he calls it his salvation moment. It's, it would be like me coming up here and finally going, guys, guess what? I finally got saved. <laughs> it was like a shock. And this was a famous preacher. But he realized that he was secure. The invitation in this verse is to remember that God, what God has done cannot be undone. I meet so many Christians who struggle with this. Oh, I'm... I hope God will still love me, or I hope he hasn't turned his back on me. But what God has done, he cannot be undone. He will not undo it. I'll just say that. And you are secure. All of humans, all of us, 
We're born in a way to find to be secure. We do it in so many different things to look for security. We deeply crave to feel secure. People do it in many ways. We have all done it, and we might still be doing it. To find our salvation in things that we can make ourselves feel secure. We want to feel secure. I think it's part of our survival instincts. I think part of it is a deep hole in our heart to find a deep sense of security. But what this song reminds us of and scripture tells us is that Jesus didn't secure your finances. He didn't secure your, uh, your job. What Jesus secured was your soul. Your soul, the most important thing to be secure. And that's what we don't want insecurity on. And Jesus would never want that for you, is that your security can be up and down all the time. You should rejoice because it is secure. We'll go through this last verse. It says, Oh, come thou key of David, come. Meaning this, that the king has come. The authority has arrived. That key of David is an interesting thing. If you want to do your own study on it, it's quite fascinating because the key, the, the Bible talks about this, and we're going to read a verse in Revelation that says Jesus has the key of David. It's kind of a weird reference. But historically, if you look into it, that the king wore actually a key on his shoulder, and it was fastened to his shoulder on his garb. And so it would, people would see this big key on his shoulder, and it meant authority. And you know what the authority was? It's mentioned back in the book of Kings. The king would walk around, and anywhere he went, if he said a door is opened, it remains open until he shuts it. And if he says the door is closed, it will remain closed until he says it's closed. He carries the key on his shoulder. That's why it's weird when you hear things like, and the key was on his shoulder. It just is a throwback reference to the authority of a king. So when he comes, the key of David come, it says, Open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Now, this will make sense when we read Revelation 3.7. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia wrote, or an angel to the church of Philadelphia. This is a word spoken to one of the churches in Revelation, but he's speaking what Jesus is. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Meaning that what, what Emmanuel means is that your salvation is secure. He opened the doors of heaven to you and to the kingdom. You are secure. You are with God, will be with God for eternity. Jesus, for, or, sorry, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the key, holds the key of authority to open and shut what he and so when you became a believer, what he opens, no one can shut. And I find it interesting because I don't know if I can sh shut it by just, even if I find myself a, a wandering, I don't know if I can shut that. It's, it's a very big theological debate, but when Jesus saves you, you are saved 
and no one can take him, take you from him. We have to own that level of security. And the song has invited us into that. And that he closes the path of misery, hell to you. Opens wide the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel. Can you guys bow your heads? You know, as we reflect on Emmanuel, as we are singing this song, my encouragement to you is, one, do those reflections as we sing, because that's how it was written to be, actually. But two, is really ultimately let your rejoice arise. Connect deep with the truth of what it means to call him Emmanuel. And let that rejoice arise. Remember this, you are new. You are alive. You are free. You are secure. You possess, like Jesus said, worth giving everything in life for it. The greatest treasure that is salvation. If this is something that you're going, I don't know that truth I can't say that I can deeply rejoice because I don't know if that's been a reality for my life. I would encourage you again, please come find me and talk to me. I would love to begin that process or me, one of my elders here or one of our members here would love to walk you in that process to discover that truth. God, we love you. We thank you that as we sing these old songs that might mean be meaningless to us, that we have a deeper appreciation for 1,200 years ago and since your people celebrating the day of Emmanuel. And that God, that, that through the death, burial, and resurrection wasn't the end of your connection with us, that you are with us, that you are for us and not against us, God, but that it is every day we wake and breathe and every single moment, whether you're, whether I'm, whether someone like me is standing outside of a hospital room in panic or someone is just going through life in a very difficult relationship or about ready to maybe lose their income, God, that you are with us at all times. But the greatest rejoice, God, is the fact that we are secure, that you have arrived. We were once living in darkness, but the clouds have parted. The dawn has come, and we celebrate Emmanuel. We rejoice. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, could you guys stand with us, sing this last song?